0: Hello, everyone. This episode will be in a similar vein to the one featuring Dr. Eleanor Janega, where we discussed the roles of the royal mistresses. In today's episode, I will be discussing the role of queenship and the legacies, or lack thereof, prescribed to many of these women. I will be joined by Dr. Valerie Schutte, a leading historian in the field whose research mainly focuses on the role of queenship, particularly in relation to Queen Mary I and Anne of Cleves. Enjoy. All right. So I would say to start off, just sort of broaden it by saying what was the role or what does the role of queen usually pertain to for these women?
1: Um, So the role of queen, I think there's lots and lots of roles and activities that It depends on the time, the era, the woman, the kingdom. And I know that's a horrible way to answer your question. But I think that some of the really more common or well-known or for me, early modern ideas of Queen, their roles could be ceremonial, um, being at court, showing up at mass, presiding over tournaments. Their roles could be spiritual or religious. Mm -hmm. So going on pilgrimage or being pious or don't giving alms. They had those kinds of roles. I think they had roles of intercession where they would try to work for an individual um, through other people at court. They had patronage roles. They had to be models for other women. And really one of their most important roles was to produce an heir. So I think there were lots and lots of
0: roles for these women. I, it sounds like you could sort of make it your own if you wanted to, if you were interested in focusing in on a certain area.
1: I think so. And I think there were a lot of expectations on a queen, but some of these roles could very much inter or er, overlap. You know, so you could be a religious role model, engaging in religious patronage, presiding you know, over religious activities. So lots of those roles could be all wrapped up into one.
0: Definitely. And would you say that that role as that kind of queen is different depending on if you're looking at queen consort versus a queen regnant? I
1: think that the difference between, so the difference between a queen consort and regnant is that a queen consort married a king or married married a king who had inherited or won the throne on his own. While a queen regnant inherited the throne in her own right. So she was the legal ruler. And of course, that that came with different roles and expectations. But in many ways, if that queen regnant married, she was expected to take on both roles as queen consort and queen regnant. And that would be a really unusual position to be in, that she would maybe still have to produce an heir And have to be a role model for other women, but at the same time, go run a Privy Council meeting. You know, so there were different roles, but many of the queen consort roles were thrown into that queen regnant's role also.
0: Okay, that's, I mean, that's intense to think, to imagine that you're doing both at the same time. It's um, definitely doesn't seem to be an easy position that you're put into. No, no.
1: I mean, I I always have visions in my head of, you know, pregnant Isabel of Castile riding on a horse commanding her military. And there she was doing all of those things with her daughters kind of, you know, in a tent not far behind her. So she was being a mother, a warrior, a queen, and she had to do all of those things at the same time. You know, so it was it would be very intense, I think. And
0: would you say that they had the same or more expectations of the way they were supposed to behave. Therefore, for women like Isabella or Mary the I, I'm
1: not sure if there were more expectations on the way they should behave. I mean, I think that a lot of that came down to gender expectations still. So that no. so no matter if she was a queen regnant or consort, there were expectations that she would be pious chased you know only having intercourse with her husband whereas a king would maybe be allowed to take mistresses and nobody would think twice but it was not advised for the queen to take you know uh other lovers so Mm -hmm. i think that those kind of gendered expectations were the same it was it would just be a matter of accepting um, the political expectations that were added on to a queen regnant.
0: And actually, that that leads perfectly into my next question, because I just recently did an episode on royal mistresses and the kind of political roles that oftentimes those women held. And would you say that that kind of position or that kind of power or influence was open to a queen consort? Or is that something unique about a mistress at that point?
1: Well, I think that they both could engage in political roles, but not necessarily in the way you would think. So I think that queen consorts could be political. So they could arrange marriages as part of political alliances. They could serve as regents in the absence of their husbands, like Catherine Parr did in 1554 when Henry VIII was in France. I think they could serve as an ambassador. So, um, Catherine of Aragon was an ambassador for her father in between her marriages to Arthur and Henry Tudor. Um, So that was a political role. I think that in even overseeing the education of their children, that could be considered a political role because you could help choose tutors. You could help choose the way in which they were given their education and prepared for whatever role came next for them, whether they be daughters or sons or expected to be princesses, queens, kings. Um, I think that queens could be, queen consorts could be political when they preferred people into their household, you know, simply by preferring different members of the court, by having these people have roles connected to her money or her lands or her estate. Those were all ways of a queen consort being political. And that doesn't even include things like speaking with ambassadors, you know, so they would have regular meetings with ambassadors too, just like kings or patronage so your patronage could be political by who you preferred or gave money to or supported so i think there were lots and lots of ways that queen consorts could be political and they probably very much overlap with the ways that the royal mistresses were political too kind of the
0: more personal politics aspects of this the sort of behind the scenes like maneuverings of the court you know, so would you say that it was probably very common to see these women carving out their own version of power rather than trying to influence their husbands directly? Maybe it was more of that roundabout, doing it in the household kind of way.
1: I think definitely for Queen's Consort, the doing it behind the scenes in household was the more prevalent way. But there are loads of examples of women being more public about their politics and sometimes getting into trouble for being about you know, being more public about their politics. You know, we have examples of, Catherine, of er- or Catherine Parr in 1546, and she almost gets ousted because she was pretty open about her religious views and religious politics, and she had to kind of take a step back. So I think there are times where women being overtly political or Queen's consorts being overtly political, that they became subject to criticism, like Margaret of Anjou, whenever she had to rule when her husband was having one of his medical problems. So I think typically they were very successful in using the household behind the scenes politics where it wasn't out in your face, but there were definitely examples where Queen's consort, you know, acted very publicly. I think it would depend on the situation, the woman, the court, the religious politics happening at the time. There were just so many, it's too... We know so much about queenship now that you can't just generalize how queens acted. There were just too many different ways.
0: And I mean, this is sort of a a lead off question, but would you say that that sort of political or influential role for a queen concert would be different depending on which country you were looking at, um, England versus France versus Spain?
1: I absolutely think it would be. And I'm not as familiar with france and spain as i am with england so i can't say with lots and lots of authority but i do think that it would depend on the monarch the the country's um politics the country's cultural heritage what they expected from women and then what those women and queen's consort were able to achieve and i even think some of that would maybe be personality based so um like Philip II very much trusted his sister. And, you know, so if you have some of those familial connections, some of those women who were queen's consort in other places could have lots of authority because their brothers or fathers or sons really trusted them as political advisors. So I think it very much depended on the situation.
0: That's That definitely seems like the most def- obvious uh, version of these, these women and their, their power roles, that it really does just come down to right time and right place almost
1: <laughs> absolutely i think it, i think a lot of times
0: it really does isn't that history most of the time it does see if you're just in the right place at the right time
1: right place at the right time and you know the what they say is true of you know the the victor writes the history so it's the right place the right time and and who wins and sometimes that's just how it comes that's just how it comes down as unfair as that is that's
0: just sometimes the way it is exactly and especially for women and their sort of role within the larger history. And, you know, so many queens do come down to us in the history books because they were in famous marriages or in famous countries. But would you say that that kind of mythologizing or memorialization that's happening for these women, do you see a difference between women who were queen concerts versus women who were queen regnants in the ways that they're remembered? I think that's a really
1: good question because we simply don't have as many queens regnant for the early modern period as we do queen's consort. So in many ways, the memorializations apply to both. So whether or not they had children and perpetuated their dynasties, if they were um, accused of cheating or whether they did cheat, Um, concepts of virtue and piety, I think some of those really gendered roles and memorializations and mythologies apply to queens across the board. But then for queens regnant, they're also mythologized or memorialized for their effectiveness, um, just as their male counterparts were. So they they kind of have lots of aspects. So again, they kind of take all the responsibilities or memorializations that would apply to a queen consort, in addition to those of a queen regnant. And that makes it it really does affect how they're memorialized because they have to be judged in a sense for if they were effective political leaders as well as effective mothers and role models. And it's a lot to take on. And I think in terms of memorializing or mythologizing, it's really easy to fall into a trap of of gender roles or gender expectations. You know, did did that queen follow, in many ways, follow what a modern audience considers to be acceptable for that type of role? And that's where some of them really suffer uh, in their memories because they don't meet modern expectations of
0: what a queen or a wife or a a ruler would be. And would you say that queen regnants tend to have a more negative legacy than the concerts i don't
1: think so i think that depends on the woman and like you just said maybe time and place because mary the first has an awful legacy but her half-sister elizabeth has a fantastic legacy and it's hard to say bad things about her or when you do it's hard to believe them so i think that again depends on right place and right time elizabeth you know, came through at the right time. She had the right people around her, and she lived a long time. You know, so she's able to have a really good legacy. She didn't suffer from a bad marriage. She didn't have horrible sons who tried to, you know, get rid of her on the throne so they could do their own thing. I mean, she so she's able to have a really positive legacy. While some of the queens regnant who suffer from a a poor reputation it's sometimes linked to their marriage. So Mary gets sucked into the black legend of Spain. So no matter what she did as a queen regnant in England, she always kind of gets tied into this negative Spanish concept. So it does, I mean, it's a bad answer again, but it depends on time and place and how the historiography has treated them over the last 500 years, because sometimes it's still really difficult to get out from underneath bad legacies that were established immediately after their death that we're still trying to fight with, you know, centuries
0: later. For sure. I mean, that is something that comes up time and time again on this show, that so often the legacies that we even have today came out pretty soon after the particular woman's death and how much it it does sort of just Stay in place over many different generations.
1: Yes, I think I think so. And sometimes when it gets really entrenched in popular imagination, too, that the reputation may be different from a popular concept of what it may be from an academic concept. So scholars might be able to um, acknowledge that a certain queen, although she has a bad popular reputation, was effective in certain ways. You know, but it's really really hard to get that negative memory out of public imagination to accept the nuance, because sometimes it's easier to pit women against each other, like Mary and Elizabeth. You know, Elizabeth was great and Mary was awful. And it's really easy to believe that binary instead of understand how both women had flaws and achievements, you know, together.
0: Definitely. And it does seem to, to be that way, usually, that there is sort of a a saint and a villain in the women's roles in court. You do see that with Mary and Elizabeth, but you also see it with Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots and Catherine de' Medici and Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. And,
1: and he, yes, absolutely. And sometimes even Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour. You know, Jane Seymour is this sainted figure because she came after the whore Anne Boleyn and it's easy to kind of just pit them against each other and they must have been opposites. You know, without
0: considering too much of them personally. I I totally agree in that way. And for these, so many of these legacies, would you say that there is sort of a similar aspect of these sort of stereotypes and misconceptions that are created around a lot of these women that we've discussed? Um, I still think it's really
1: difficult to separate many early modern women, queens or otherwise, from gendered stereotypes so we tend to think of these women you know when you think of your ideal queen or what early modern people would consider an ideal queen it would be pious silent baby factories you know and when they're not those things uh then they're seen differently but not necessarily always in a good way so they have um different you can think about them differently And usually the ones who didn't behave in that way get studied more because they're more interesting because they didn't necessarily behave in the typical expected way. So, you know, there's so much scholarship on Anne Boleyn because she didn't behave how early modern people expected a queen to behave. But it really does. But then her reputation, you know, for generations suffered because she didn't behave how a queen should have behaved. And now she has a very vibrant reputation but it wasn't always the case. So I think it does come down to stereotypes that just don't go away, but maybe as more modern ideas or academic ideas of queenship emerge and more nuances accepted and those things kind of get put into the public realm and public sphere and heritage sites when people go visit them, then we can start to explore these women outside of the stereotypes. But a lot of those places do perpetuate the stereotypes because it's kind of what is expected. And, you know, then it makes it really hard to get a different idea of a queen or a woman out there.
0: Would you say that the women, like the Ambolins or any of these queen regnants, the reason that their legacies do tend to be negative is because they do break down those gender barriers or they have more power than is viewed as they should have? And that's sort of what creates them as like, they must be unnatural in some way. I, I definitely think that's part of it. I
1: tend to blame the 19th century for this, especially for the English queens. So, so much interesting scholarship came out of the 19th century and all the antiquarians who put together the collections of sources. And, you know, so much of what we know now about the early modern period came because the 19th century historians you know, printed the sources and put them together, and now some of those are lost, and they're fantastic, but those were definitely done with a really patriarchal concept of marriage, of queenship, of you know, a kind of a Whiggish Protestant point of view. So anything that didn't conform with that was just we didn't talk about it, we didn't mention it, or it was just labeled as wrong or a very like the Stricklands who did wonderful work, but they have a very domestic concept of queenship and what it was to be a good queen and a good wife. And in some ways, we still are underneath that as well. So when a queen didn't fit what those concepts of womanhood or queenship was, they were kind of labeled, like you said, the the wicked women of history. And sometimes you have to get out. It's hard to get out from under that too. So Anne Boleyn could be wicked because she didn't follow normal concepts of queenship but at the same time you can maybe can see her as a saint because she was victim to a horrible husband so it does kind of depend on your point of view the other thing too (coughs) is that for many of these women there aren't very many sources so when you don't have the sources it's easy to kind of fill in the gaps depending on your point of view So for some of them, we can have very few sources and immediately imagine that woman to be a saint or have very few sources and imagine that woman to be a sinner. And someone who falls under that is maybe Catherine Howard, who, you know, had sexual relationships before marrying Henry and was executed by the time she was 19. So it's easy in history. Was she a wanton, silly, goofy girl who just slept around for fun? Or was she a victim of sexual abuse? And that opinion varies greatly because there aren't enough sources to know. So I think that many of these women, queens also, you know, all queens and regular women, not queens, all fall into that. There just aren't a lot of sources. So you kind of fill in the gaps. And that's where some of these stereotypes
0: and reputations come from. The 19th century historians seem to have created a lot of what we now know as history, which is something you don't always realize until you go far enough back and you realize it was all them who created it.
1: Yes. Yes. That's, that's one of the things I really like to do is kind of look at a queen's reputation now and trace it backwards. And you can always see some big turning points or interesting historical, you know, uh, like stereotypes that come out of the 19th century. And it was just, well, we took the four sources we had and assume that she must have been a certain way because she did or did not conform to our ideas of what a woman should be right now. So, yeah, it's really interesting to kind of trace some of these back to the 19th century and go, we really need to get back to the primary sources to figure out what these queens were really like.
0: Yeah, or maybe look at the 19th century sources as their own Primary sources of seeing how they're interpreting this is telling us more about their history than the women's history, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: There's some really amazing work, I think, that could be done with the 19th century sources and how women were viewed and interpreted versus how we understand them now and how they were understood
0: in their own time. And so, within this, that you were even saying, there's so many women that now do have a very different legacy or a very different interpretation. But then there are some that are very blatantly not really reevaluated. You have women like Anne Boleyn and Catherine the Great who are now celebrated and seen as these sort of like badass women from history. But then you do still have women like Catherine Howard who aren't. What would you say that really comes down to?
1: I think some of it comes down to sources. So, and there are more for Anne Boleyn. And she did seem to have a bigger cultural impact at the time. So she was the first executed wife. She was the long-awaited-for, you know, did the Catholic Church split. I mean, there's a lot of cultural impact of a woman like Anne Boleyn. The same with Catherine the Great, a lot of cultural impact. Whereas for Catherine Howard, the marriage was much, much shorter. The courtship was much shorter. There aren't as many sources And you just don't see that marriage making the cultural impact. There weren't any kids there. She was a teenager. It didn't have a great family, didn't fall because of her execution. So I think it comes down to culture and politics surrounding that marriage or relationship or queen that has that kind of where we remember them versus not remembering them and almost considering them as not as important
0: as some other queens. And so what do you think come down to just we don't have as much so we can't really build off of this understanding of them?
1: Sometimes we don't have as much. Sometimes we do, but the marriage or the queen, the queen's family wasn't necessarily as important. or if they didn't have a child, then you don't have you don't consider the role of her as mother to the heir who became important. So sometimes it might be that there's just not enough sources. So some of these queens just kind of fall through the cracks as not studies as much as others. And some of them, we just don't give the same type of weight to them as important for what they did if they didn't have great impact through patronage or through childbearing or through architecture or something, then we just don't, they just don't get as studied as
0: much. That's, that's, yeah, that's an interesting point to really look at more of what kind of things a woman does to get her remembered versus not. And, you know, you, you definitely see also the farther back you go into the medieval era. There are so many queens that most people have never heard of, or at least like maybe know a reference to, And that is what you talk about in your your book, Forgotten Queens, of like, so many of these women are overlooked or greatly stereotyped. And at the same time, you have some others that aren't and are remembered. And so why do you think that some are seen as sort of unworthy of even mentioning or looking deeper into?
1: So first, it comes to sources. So there just may not be, you know, it's. Or the lack of sources, but at the same time, it has to do with the ways in which women have been studied over time has changed. So now there are greater concepts um, of what a queen could do. And we understand to look for a queen's roles in different places than your traditional, you know, chronicled histories where a, a woman might only be mentioned when she gets married, when she appears in public, and when she has a baby. And sometimes we know now to look in other ways to piece together a queenship. And that is maybe why some have been overlooked, because they just don't appear kind of blatant in your face, and you have to do some digging. And I think that that's one of the really great things that's coming out of queenship scholarship now is understanding different ways to find women, whether it's through tracing their dowry money. And, you know, what happened to their lands and how did they rule them and how did they collect and their relationships to money is a really interesting way to find queens. But untraditional looking through art is a way to maybe trace some of these older queens or um, that we don't have lots of maybe written sources for. But these are more newer types of ways to recover some of these queens. So I think you will see or I hope rather that some of these lesser known women Get studied because of different techniques and ways to study them, as opposed to your people like Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, where there's boatloads of written records and they're easy to find. You know, so I think it's a matter of understanding the nuance of queenship and the roles of women and where to look.
0: And would you say that that fiction can play a large role in that? Like, I know recently, if On Netflix, there was Vikings Valhalla, and that had Queen Emma of Normandy in it. And honestly, I'd never heard of her before, that show. And so do you think that in those ways, there might be potential for more people to learn about these forgotten queens? Absolutely. I think that
1: having a lesser known queen like that picked up popularly, whether through a TV series, a movie, or even historical fiction, kind of brings them to a wider audience and even if the way they're portrayed on TV or in in a novel isn't accurate or all historical because it's meant to be entertainment at least it kind of brings that queen out into attention and maybe somebody will then want to go back and find more about her and trace more about her so i think that even if some of the programs can be up to great scrutiny which i you know i do all the time I think they can still be incredibly useful tools for introducing someone to a topic that or to a person who isn't very well known. So I I think you're right. I think the more that some of these lesser known women get picked up popularly, that they will definitely
0: that the scholarship on them will definitely follow. And I was just thinking as you were saying this, if there is a listener who's watched that show or watched a movie and they want to learn more about these women you mentioned like looking at dower money or looking at paintings but what would you recommend for people to go to or to research to find more of these women I don't know if
1: everybody would have access to it but the Oxford dictionary of national biography may not have it for English queens anyway may every queen may not have her own entry But she will be mentioned in her husband's entry, possibly her family's entry, and you can kind of go there to at least piece together who that woman was, who she was related to, and start, I think. Um, I mean, sometimes even just some basic internet searches, you'll be surprised what you can find because someone did take an interest from them on a TV show and just started to look into them. You know, so that's maybe not the best way. You know, you don't necessarily write your dissertation based on what you find on the internet, but I think it's a great way to start to see if, you know, other people, like you said, they saw Emma of Normandy and thought, wow, she might be pretty interesting. And you can probably get online and find somebody else who thought the same thing, you know, and start to at least piece together what she might have been like and hopefully find some references to her in a book somewhere else, you know, where you could start to do real interesting
0: research on who she actually was. We can hope. Let's hope that that can, can happen hope. more.
1: Can As I say that, I hope. I <laughs> hope. Yeah,
0: exactly. We hope that that can be what occurs. I hope that that's what yes. yes. And I mean, for you, for these women, what would you like to see their legacies be, how they are remembered, in sort of popular imagination and in scholarship?
1: I think that would really vary for each queen, honestly. So, I mean, obviously there are some queens that I study more than others. So I really study mostly Queen Mary I and Anne of Cleves. And one's a regnant and one's a consort, but they both have horrible reputations. So, um, you know, for Mary, I'd like the idea of Bloody Mary to go away, which in scholarship it has, but in popular imagination it hasn't. So in some ways, I need the popular concept of Mary to catch up to what the scholarship has been doing. And maybe even the same for Anne of Cleves. I mean, she's kind of, you know, considered just this ugly German woman who was a bad marriage for six months. But in reality, we have to think of her and her marriage as being an important international deal that was made between Henry and Germany in the same way that his marriage to Catherine of Aragon was an important international deal So sometimes I think that it depends on the woman, but we really do need to consider the woman, her family, her politics, if the marriage was international or domestic. And there's lots of ways to reconsider. And honestly, it would depend by the queen. And sometimes I think we need to take the queens who are more popular and have these really stuck in stereotypes and give a hard think to whether that stereotype is warranted or where it came from to begin with. So I think there's, it would really depend on the queen and the situation. Um, but I would, I mean, I'm, um, I think that there's so much new work on queenship being done that learning to use other techniques and other sources without simply looking at these women through gendered lenses of how did they behave as wives and mothers, that there's many more ways to get at them for who they were, you know, personally and as a queen.
0: There is there is so much more when you actually start to de- dig deeper. It's It can be pretty incredible how much you can find about these women. Absolutely. I mean, I
1: am suffering with that with Anne of Cleves right now. I'm writing a cultural biography of her. And when mm-hmm. I signed on to do the biography, I very naively thought there's not much about Anne out there. And boy, was I wrong because it depends on where you look so like, Is there lots of information for the six months when she was queen? Absolutely not. But can you go through the political record and find where she's mentioned in letters in France in the 1540s? Absolutely. It's there. You can find her cultural impact with Hans Holbein for years. But these aren't things that are necessarily usually associated with her because she was only queen for six months. So I think that there are just so many other ways to consider women besides did they have kids and were they good wives? You know, there's just, we just know too much now.
0: Yeah. And even with Mary the First, it's so interesting that she is a queen regnant and yet so much of her legacy is built upon her marriage and her failure to have children rather, and I mean, then burning Protestants, but like so much of it is coupled with and on top of it. She had this horrible marriage and she couldn't have kids.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, and I think, too, sometimes that really overshadows. So she didn't have kids almost makes her a failure. But when you think about it, she she understood when she went into her, her queenship, you know, her Guildhall speech that she makes only a few months after she becomes queen. She says, I would choose never to get married. You know, she has seen the six marriages of her father and how crappy those can be. And she says, I would never get married. But I understand, you know, it is my role as a queen to do so and to have kids. And she tried. And then you kind of couple that with Elizabeth, who never marries and never tries to have kids. And you kind of think, why was Mary damned for trying to fulfill her role as a consort and Elizabeth wasn't? You know, So, like, I think, too, sometimes the memories just don't make sense, you know? And we do put so much emphasis on Mary didn't have a child you know, and tried, and she failed as a woman compared to what was she like as a queen. You know, her having a child was only one aspect of what she would have been expected to do as both queen regnant of England, and even you have to think she was queen consort of Spain. So she had two different roles to fill at the same time. And sometimes we forget that too, that she wasn't just queen of England. She was queen of lots of places you know, through her husband. And those are lots of, you know, lots of roles to fill.
0: I, I do, I when you're saying that, I find that I often forget that, yeah, she was queen consort of Spain. Like we think of Philip coming over to England, but that was also her role there in the Spanish court. Yeah. And she never went there, but she was,
1: you know, so she had those kinds of queen consort roles thrust upon her and then the queen regnant roles thrust upon her. So You know, it does, we just have to do more nuanced thinking than, okay, Protestants were burned and she didn't have a child. You know, there's just more going on than that. So I think sometimes it's just a matter of widening perspectives and looking outside of
0: what has traditionally been done for, you know, what else is there? I think that's the perfect thing to say of what, yeah, nuance, my new favorite word and broaden the scope and the horizon. (laughs) And I would say, are, is there any last thing that you would like to add about queenship or any particular queen or anything about for people looking to find out more? Is there anything, or do you feel like we really covered what we wanted to today? I think we've
1: covered a lot. I think if there are listeners who want to find out more about queenship, you know, I recommend the Queenship and Power series put out by Palgrave Macmillan. There's wonderful books on many different queens so you have you know your mary the 1st and elizabeth who are well known but there's also books on you know polish queens or spanish queens or french queens who your audience may not be as familiar with and that would be a great place to start to kind of learn about some of these other queens you know, there's a lot of really great scholarship out there. And I think that that's the perfect place for someone who's really interested to start.
0: That's great. Uh, that's actually perfect. And I'll, I'll link that book series on my social media too for people so that they can go find that. I think that would be really helpful as well. Thank you so much, Valerie, for taking part in this. I I think that it is so important to talk about the roles in general, not just the women who filled them. And so I think this is going to be really helpful for listeners. Thank you.